turn now to the word of the living God. We're going to read this morning from 1 Kings chapter 6. We're still looking at Solomon in Kings, and this morning, particularly at Solomon's building of the temple. So 1 Kings chapter 6, starting in the first verse, before we read, let's pray together. Good and gracious God, who has loved us before we ever imagined loving you, who has sacrificed your own son for our life, for our freedom from sin and from death, and who has given us your word, that through the light of your word we might see the light of life, who is Christ. We pray that you would open our hearts to see the light of your word in all of its glory. And so we pray that you would bless us in our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 6. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. The portico at the, at the front of the main hall of the temple extended the width of the temple, that is 20 cubits, and projected 10 cubits from the front of the temple. He made narrow clerestory windows in the temple against the walls of the main hall and inner sanctuary. He built a structure around the building in which there were side rooms. The lowest floor was five cubits wide, the middle floor six cubits, and the third floor seven. He made offset ledges around the outside of the temple so that nothing would be inserted into the temple walls. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. The entrance to the lowest floor was on the south side of the temple. A stairway led up to the middle level and from there to the third. So he built the temple and completed it, roofing it with beams and cedar planks, and he built the side rooms all along the temple. The height of each was five cubits, and they were attached to the temple by beams of cedar. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. He lined its interior walls with cedar boards, paneling them from the floor of the temple to the ceiling and covered the floor of the temple with planks of pine. He partitioned off 20 cubits at the rear of the temple with cedar boards from floor to ceiling to form within the temple an inner sanctuary, the most holy place. The main hall in front of this room was 40 cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with gourds and open flowers. Everything was cedar. No stone was to be seen. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, and 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold, and he overlaid the altar of cedar. Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold, and he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, which was overlaid with gold. So he overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. In the inner sanctuary, he made a pair of cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. One wing of the first cherub was five cubits long, and the other wing five cubits, ten cubits from wingtip to wingtip. 
The second cherub also measured 10 cubits, for the two cherubim were identical in size and shape. The height of each cherub was 10 cubits. He placed the cherubim inside the innermost room of the temple with their wings spread out. The wing of one cherub touched one wall, while the wing of the other touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. He overlaid the cherubim with gold. On the walls all around the temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He also covered the floors of both the inner and outer rooms of the temple with gold. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood with five-sided jams, and on the two olive wood doors, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid the cherubim and palm trees with beaten gold. In the same way, he made four-sided jams of olive wood for the entrance to the main hall. He also made two pine doors, each having two leaves that turned in sockets. He carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them and overlaid them with gold, hammered evenly over the carvings. And he built the inner courtyard of three courses of dress stone and one course of trimmed cedar beams. The foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year, in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He had spent seven years building it. As a kid, I loved hot dogs. They were so tasty, so salty, so delicious. I didn't know what was in them, and I'm sure I wouldn't have cared even if I had. I liked to put ketchup and mustard and pickle relish on it, and it was so easy. You just take it out of the bag, you put it on a plate, you put the plate in the microwave, you hit the 30-second button, you take it out before it begins to explode, you plop it on a bun, you cover it with your toppings, and voila, you have a delicious lunch. I loved hot dogs, and I loved hot dogs and my SpaghettiOs as well. But I don't, I'm not really one much for hot dogs any longer. Every once in a while is fine, and if I'm at the friendly confines taking in a Cubs game, then when the guy comes walking by and you smell the, you smell the hot dogs, then I'm tempted. I'd be more tempted if they weren't $10 a piece. But I'm not one much for hot dogs anymore. Now when I think of a delicious lunch, I think of my mother-in-law's roast. She takes her time with the roast. She prepares it just the right way. She puts it in the oven before church, and we don't eat it until after church. She checks it to make sure it comes apart in just the right way. Then she takes the rest of the juice, and she makes gravy for the potatoes and, and for the roast itself. You're getting hungry, aren't you? And then, and then she takes it, and, and she serves it. It's just, and that's what I think of when I think of a delicious lunch. Looking back, it's hard to really understand how hot dogs were so appealing to me but they were. Perhaps it's because it was fast and easy and my taste hadn't matured. I think a lot of us are like that. We like things fast. We like things easy. But God isn't that way. And God's plans aren't always that way. The plans of God are a lot more like my mother-in-law's roast than they are the hot dogs of my youth. Because God is willing to wait for just the right time to do just the right thing in his big, long, grand, millenniums-long plan to redeem his people. And we see that right here in the very first verse. If you look with me at verse 1, it says, In the 480th year, after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. Did you catch that? 
480 years. 480 years. 480 years is a very long time. 480 years ago, John Calvin and Martin Luther were alive. 480 years ago, the dominant political forces in the American continents were the Aztec and Incan empires. 480 years is a very long time. And so it was 480 years since the people of God crossed the Red Sea, coming out of Egypt, until now Solomon has the foundation of his temple laid. 480 years. But this is more than just a timestamp. It's more than just a timestamp because Kings is more than just history. Kings is theological history. And so this timestamp tells us that there is a major, major event in God's plan to save his people from their sins and to bring them back into a relationship with him happening at this very moment. And we can look to another timestamp to see that God gives timestamps when something significant is happening in his word. We can look to Exodus 12 for that. Exodus 12, starting in verse 40, says, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So the Exodus is the major redemptive event in the Old Testament. And it happened 430 years after Jacob and sons went down into Egypt. 430 years later, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is swamped, and they're free from Egypt. And now 480 years after that, Solomon gets to lay the foundation for the Lord's temple. And this laying of the foundation of the Lord's temple is best understood as the end of the Exodus. Now, how can that be? Right? We, we, usually, we usually understand the Exodus to be the people come out of Egypt, they, they cross the Red Sea, they wander in the wilderness for those 40 years, and then they cross over the Jordan River with Joshua, and that's usually how we conceptualize the end of the Exodus. And there's a way in which that's true, but, but God didn't just promise His people that they would enter the Promised Land. He promised them that they would occupy it, that they would control it, and that they would have rest in it. But when the people of God entered into the promised land under Joshua, they didn't have rest. They had war and victory. In the time of the judges, there was no rest. There was war and chaos. In the time of Samuel, there was no peace. There was war and there was progress. In the days of David, there was no rest. There was war and great progress. Now in the time of Solomon, now there is rest. Now there is peace all around. And now Solomon can take his eyes off the battlefield and put them on building God a house that is worthy of his great name. And this is precisely as was promised in the book of Deuteronomy. Again from Deuteronomy 12, the Lord says, When you go over the Jordan, and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit. And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. When I give you rest, 
Then I will choose a place for my name to dwell. The when and then of Deuteronomy and Moses now are the here and now when we come to 1 Kings chapter 6. It has taken 440 years from the time God gave the law through Moses a second time just before the people crossed into the, into the promised land. It's taken 440 years, but finally the when and then has become the here and now. And so the work of building the temple begins. Now that's a total of over 900 years from the time when the Israelites went into Egypt until the time when the Lord gives rest in the land he'd promised Abraham. And yet even though it has taken over 900 years, still God's plan is going according to plan, and it is exactly on schedule as God had said it would be. And so then the next section here, after verse 1, and before we get to the Lord's speech to Solomon, describes the, the external part of the temple. And it's a magnificent structure, and I want to have a slide thrown that gives you some kind of a, a visual of what the temple would have looked like. Of course, this is just an artist's rendering. But really, a lot of these features are described, and they'll come back into play at different points throughout the book. So we'll, we'll leave it at that, and we'll move on, noting the magnificence of the structure. Well, then we'll move on into the the central core part of the passage, which comes here in verses 11 through 13. If you could turn the lights back on so I can read, that would be great. The word of the Lord came to Solomon, verse 11. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. So the bulk of this passage, the bulk of chapter 6, is taken up with describing the interior of the temple. That's the, the largest section. But it's as if here God says, first things first. Before we describe the, the lavish magnificence of the interior of this temple, first, I'm going to tell you, Solomon, the builder of this temple, I'm going to tell you, that without your obedience, this temple is meaningless to me. And so God sets out to tell Solomon a couple of things, and we can break what, what God says to Solomon into two relatively easy categories, both of them having to do with covenants. As God governs and moves his scripture and his plan through covenants, we recognize, first of all, that both Moses and David are included in this promise to Solomon. He says to Solomon, if you obey my commands, decrees, and laws, that's Moses, and if you do that, then I will dwell with my people and you will be their king. That's David. And so God here is using the covenants he made with Moses and David to dictate the terms that he continues with Solomon. Solomon lives under God's covenant administration. But the second thing we see here is a principle of the covenant. That is, that oftentimes, one man stands for the many. And we see this principle other places in the Scripture. Even at the very beginning, we see this principle in the Scripture that Adam was one who stood for his people. That in Adam's righteousness, we are righteous, and in Adam's sin, we are sinful. We see this in Romans 5. And I'll read verses 12, 15, and 19. Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. And then verse 15, the many died by the trespass of the one man. And verse 19, through the disobedience of the one man, 
the many were made sinners. The one man stands, in this case, for all men except for Christ. And then we can see that it works in a positive direction as well with Moses. If you go to, towards the end of the account of the, of the, the Lord speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 32, you, you come to, Moses is coming down from the mountain of God, and what does Moses find? He finds Aaron and Miriam leading the people in worship of this golden calf. And God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy this people and I will rebuild this people with you. Everybody else is going to die. I'm going to start over with you. Moses says, please, Lord, don't do that. Don't let the Egyptians mock us. Oh, the Lord brought them out of Egypt just to destroy them in the desert. For your name's sake, don't do that. And the Lord agrees. The Lord agrees and spares the people because of one righteous man's prayers. Let me see another negative example of that in David. In, in 2 Samuel 24, we, we recognize that David is full of pride and conceit. And he decides that he wants to know just how great Israel has become since he's been the king. And so he says, go out and number all my troops. Let's see just how big and strong my army really is. And Joab, who is no righteous man, if you'll recall, even Joab knows this is a mistake, and he says to David, why would you do that? Why provoke the Lord like that? Just be content with what God has given you. David says, go do it. And predictably, the Lord comes to David and says, your pride and your conceit has not pleased me, it's angered me. And the Lord sends a plague on the land of Israel that kills 70,000 people because of one man's sin. But this isn't a principle that only works itself out on the pages of ancient Scripture. We recognize that the actions of, of leadership, the actions of one man, can often have a great effect on others. This is true in our own households. It's true that the way a, a husband and a father interacts with his wife and children has great effects on them. That if we teach wisdom, our children will benefit. If we model foolishness, our children will be harmed. That there is a, a relationship between the one and the many. We recognize this on a broader scale as well. Some of you have been around long enough to remember what it was like to live in our, in our former denomination. We were perpetually wearied. We groaned and we struggled and we were distracted. All the wrangling and the confusion. There was confusion about what people were confused about as they were confused about what they were confused about. It was a mess. And that confusion still continues. I, I was reminded of it just this last week. I saw a letter that was penned by some evangelical leaders in the RCA and Room for All, the open apostates who encourage sin and rebellion against God. And they wrote a letter together in which they stated they agree on the basic tenets of the gospel. Now how can that be? Paul asked rhetorically, what agreement can there be between light and darkness? We remember being hampered and hindered and saddened because of the leadership under which we served. We can think of this as well. Just in this, in this last week or two, there was the royal wedding. It was a grand affair. And I'm not particularly sure why Americans care so much. Now, tomorrow is Memorial Day, right? And we remember and celebrate the sacrifice of all these men who have served in the army in the past and who gave their lives so that we can be free from the trappings and sayings and doings of the British monarchy. 
And in about a month, we're going to blow off billions of dollars of fireworks to celebrate that we don't have to care about what the kings and princes and princesses do. But still we care. It's beyond me. But at the heart of this royal affair, which the whole world was watching, was a preacher and a sermon. And oh, did the world love the sermon. Everybody loved the sermon. Even CNN loved the sermon. There was an atheist columnist who said, this guy could make me a believer. And it sounded nice what he was saying. He talked a lot about love, even a little bit about sacrifice. But it wasn't nice. Because the love he was preaching wasn't love according to the Scriptures. And the Christ he was preaching isn't the Christ who is put forward in the Scriptures. And so we can see that, in fact, he he preaches anti-gospel, very cleverly cloaked anti-gospel. At about the the 10-minute mark in the sermon, he says that if we would all just learn to love each other, we would bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Now that is Pelagianism, the old heresy, because it denies the sinful nature of man apart from the work of Christ, and it's false teaching because it is Christ who brings the new creation. Who are you and I to bring about a new creation? No, Jesus says, I have gone to prepare a place for you, not I have gone to wait for you to make the world ready for me. But then also, he states towards the end that Jesus, in his sacrifice on the cross, got nothing out of it. Now, I certainly hope that's not true, because I hope he got me out of it, and I hope he got you out of it. And the scripture in Hebrews says that it was for the joy that was set before him that Christ went to the cross, that he has gone to the cross to shed his blood to redeem sinners, to buy sinners out of slavery and death, that he has gone to the cross to destroy the devil once and for all, deal him his his death blow. Was there a cost? Yes. Was it, was it horrible beyond, beyond imagination? Yes. Do I hope that I never fully understand the gravity of the horror? Yes. But did he decide it was worth it? Yes. Because the glory he got out of it was worth it to him. Anyways, this false teacher also teaches all kinds of things that lead people into sin and destruction outside of the royal wedding. And he was given a platform to speak to the entire world. And this one man has had the opportunity to lead the many, like Adam and David, before him into destruction. The Lord gives Solomon great responsibility. He says very simply, if you follow my decrees, I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. Israel's fate rests with her king. And we'll see in just a few short chapters how that works out. We can turn now to the largest portion of the passage for today, which deals with the interior of the temple. Average Joe and Jane Israelite never would have entered into the inside of the temple. But average Joe and Jane Israelite had a huge interest in knowing that their temple was worthy of being the dwelling place of the maker of the heavens and the earth on the earth. And so, the author of Kings, taking eyewitness accounts from before him, records for us that Solomon's temple was indeed a lavishly fitting, at least as fitting as they could make it, dwelling place for God 
among the earth. But this is more than just an, an ancient uh, HDTV back, backroom show about, about this wonderful house, which was certainly no fixer-upper. This is, this is meant to give us an inside look at the significance of the temple. And first of all, to look at its lavishness. We are meant on this, on this visual tour of the temple. We are meant to be wowed. We are meant to feel ourselves in the temple, to look and see the palm trees and the fruits and the flowers and the cherubim and, and to see all the, all the gold, oh, so much gold, and to smell the, the sweet cedar smells. We're, we're meant to be there and to see its lavishness and to recognize that God is worthy of lavish giving and praise. And we too, should be moved to recognize that our God is worthy of lavish giving. As I was reading, I came across a number of scholars who basically said, what a waste. Couldn't this money have been better used in other ways? Couldn't they have fed the poor of Israel? Isn't that exactly what Judas said? When Mary cracks open that expensive bottle of nard and pours it over the Lord, Judas says, oh, that money could have been given to the poor, and Jesus rebukes him. Those who don't understand the fittingness of making a house for God which is worthy of Him misunderstand the worthiness of our God. And our lives are meant to be lives, our bodies are meant to be temples which are fitting and worthy by our extravagant godliness to give to. See, I'm not, I'm not softening you up for a financial campaign by talking about the, the lavishness of God's dwelling place. It would be good to give lavishly to the past 5K so I can run in a dragon outfit. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about our lives being lived from beginning to end to the best of our ability, lavishly in worship of God. Paul says this in Colossians 1. He says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. Solomon wanted to build a temple that was worthy of the Lord and pleasing to the Lord. Do we dare, our bodies being temples of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, do we dare be outdone by ancient Israel? We who have the Spirit, we who know Christ, do we dare be outdone by the ancients in the lavishness of our worship? Before we get into just... Just a couple specifics. We want to get in a couple specifics before we get into tying it all together. And when you come into the temple in your mind's eye, what do you see? Well, you see the ark, God's dwelling place among man. And it's seated under the cherubim. And there also, as you walk through, you see the palm trees and the fruits and the flowers and the cherubim, and what does this remind us of? It reminds us of Eden. In Eden, there were palm trees, flowers, and fruits. And what's the last thing we see in Eden? As Adam is evicted or expelled or exiled out of Eden because of his sin, eating the one fruit he wasn't allowed to eat, what's the last thing we see in Eden? We read this at the end of Genesis 3. God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Where does the ark rest? But it rests under two cherubim. Holy defenders of the honor and the glory of God. The temple is meant to symbolize coming back into the presence of God. So let's tie this all together. God still takes his time. God still takes his time. It was 900 years in Egypt and until the temple was built. There's another 500 until the temple was destroyed. Another 500 until Christ, the true temple, comes. That's a long wait. And we've waited almost that long for Christ to return. God still takes his time. He's a roast God. He's not a hot dog God. And he waits. He waits to bring us back into presence with him to bring us back into perfect relationship with him, face to face, person to person, as we always were meant to be. But how? How can God bring a sinful man with Adam's sin in him back into his presence after he had gone to such great lengths to keep Adam and his offspring out of his presence? Just as Israel's fate rested with her king, so our fate rests with our king. And as eventually Solomon's disobedience will lead to the removal of the presence of God from his people, so Christ's obedience will lead us into the very presence of God, perfectly, eternally, with his people. We see this in, in again in Romans 5, verse 19. For as by Adam's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by Jesus' obedience the many will be made righteous. But how? Again, how are we made righteous? We're made righteous through the sacrifice of Christ. That's what the temple is all about. The temple is all about sacrifice. God will dwell with his people. But after sin, the only way to approach God is through sacrifice. Just picture it in your mind's eye. It's the one day a year the high priest is allowed to go into that most inner part of the temple. And I'm sure his heart is thumping faster than mine does before I get up here to preach. And he girds up his, his loins, so to speak. He, he gets up his nerve and he he begins to walk and he goes across the porch and he enters through those doors into the, the main portion of the temple. And you can hear his footsteps echo in the great room as the light shines through from those clerestory windows and he looks and he sees the palm trees and the fruits and the flowers and the cherubim reminding him that he doesn't belong here. And he goes past the gold chains and he goes past the barrier between the holy place and the most holy place. And he comes into the most holy place. And what does he see there but the Ark of the Covenant? The throne of God on the earth. And inside that Ark are the very tablets of stone God had carved out of his mountain with his finger. And then standing before him, the two 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide cherubim those defenders of God's glory, staring woodenly down at him. This is a man who by all rights goes to his death because he has no right to be here. He's a sinner and God is holy. Except 
that he brings with him the blood of a sacrifice. He brings the blood of another being, which allows him to enter into the presence of God as God's anger at his sin is projected onto the other being that he might be considered sinless as he enters into the very presence of God. So it is with us. We come into the presence of God, not wholly in and of ourselves. We come into the presence of God sinless because of a sacrifice. But not the sacrifice of a bull or a goat, but the sacrifice of the second Adam. The sacrifice of the Son of the living God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We see this in Hebrews Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? When we come to the new creation, we come to the very presence of God himself. And we come only because we come sprinkled and washed clean by the blood of the crucified, sacrificed Christ. We see that this is the same God who is our God. God is still not in a hurry. God is still waiting for every last one of his elect people to come into his kingdom before he sends his son with his new creation. And God still lets the actions of one man affect many, many others. Christ, our King, still affects us, making us righteous. Removal of sin and perfect righteousness given to us. And God still requires sacrifice for us to enter his presence. And it's by the sacrifice of Jesus that we come, not just for a time like Adam, but we come forever into the presence of God himself. You see, the God of kings is our God. And the great and mighty and merciful and worthy God, he is. Let's pray. Gracious God, we recognize that all beauty, all glory, all sacrifice, all purity and all righteousness points us to you and to your Son. And we see in our mind's eye, through your grace and your word, the glory of your temple. And yet we hear from your Son that one greater than Solomon is here. That he is the true temple in whom you dwell with us. God and man in perfect union. And we know that one day we come into the new creation where there is a tree of life, but there is no temple because you are there with us 
that we are there with Christ, face to face, person to person. And so we give you praise for your greatest of sacrifices, which allows us to dwell with you. As you fill us now, yet one day you will fill us so that we shine like the sun. We long for that day. We perhaps are even impatient for that day. And yet we know that you bring it about in your perfect time. And so while we wait, as we sung earlier, we pray that you'd help us to face a task unfinished, to bring the message of the crucified Christ to more people, that we might have more voices to sing your praise, that your people may come into your kingdom, and that the king will return. He who is great will be among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.